most critically acclaimed films of this millennium. Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood is a film many audiences profoundly dislike. No one has to like a masterpiece, but the least that can be expected is that the reasons for the adulation be recognised and understood. Released in 2007, it has a loyal following, but for the wider public, the persistent objection is that the film's central character Daniel Plainview is so relentlessly unlikable, it is impossible to identify with him. Portrayed by Daniel Day-Lewis in an Oscar-winning performance, Plainview is without question one of the most alienating characters to ever be granted centre stage in a Hollywood movie. A character so ruthless he unconscionably manipulates, exploits and cheats people in order to get what he wants. Going so far as to murder a man who tricks him into believing they are long-lost half-brothers. But only after having adopted an orphaned infant, in order to shamelessly pass himself off as a family man. All in order to procure contracts from small landowners to drill for oil on their property. My boy's been sinking though. He needs fresh air. Doctors all say he needs plentiful fresh air. What would you say would be a fair price for this lot, Abel? If Plainview is unlikable and impossible to identify with, ask yourself, where is it written that authors shall not create unlikable characters? Where hath it been decreed that drama must present characters with whom the audience can sympathise? Drama is conflict, not harmony, and filmmakers are telling stories, not arranging flowers. Besides, some of the most celebrated works of fiction revolve around characters that are unlikable or hard to identify with. The courage storytellers show in creating such characters encourages us to consider aspects of human behaviour we might not otherwise wish to confront. It is what makes them fascinating, which explains why, in ancient Greece, Medea murdered her children. In medieval Scotland, Macbeth slaughtered his way to the throne. And from Venice, while the rest of the city flourished in Renaissance art and commerce, Iago poured such poison in Othello's ear, he murdered his wife Desdemona. Two centuries later, when the effects of the First Industrial Revolution were being felt throughout England, Emily Bronte had Heathcliff and Cathy jealously raging against each other across the Yorkshire Moors. Sixty years after that, away in St. Petersburg, Fyodor Dostoevsky's Raskolnikov was a mass of frittering neurosis long before he murdered his landlady, Alyona Ivanovna, and her half-sister Lizaveta in Crime and Punishment. And barely two decades later in Big Whiskey, Wyoming, reformed gunslinger William Money reverted to his brutal ways. It's a hell of a thing killing a man. You take away all he's got, and all he's ever gonna have. Although the film credits Upton Sinclair's 1927 novel Oil as the source material, Anderson used only very select chapters of its sprawling 528 pages. As for Sinclair, his inspiration was the sensational Teapot Dome scandal in 1922. There, tycoon Edward L. Dehaney was accused of bribing Albert Fall, Secretary of the Interior in President William Harding's administration, in return for a lease to drill on government-owned land. In Sinclair's novel, Dehaney became J. Arnold Ross, and in Anderson's film, Ross became Plainview. And just as Sinclair was under no obligation to be faithful to the Teapot Dome scandal, neither was Anderson obliged to be faithful to Sinclair's plot. And more pertinently, no author is obliged to create likeable characters. The only real obligation any author must meet is to create interesting characters. And I hasten to add, such characters don't always have to be explained. Where do they come from? 
Who were their parents? What trauma did they suffer from as children? Here is the eight-time Oscar-nominated writer-director in 2007 being interviewed by Annette Insdorf. Did you have an idea of what had happened to Daniel Plainview before we met him that informed some of your decisions? A little bit, but not too much. I mean, it was enough for me to discover him with a pickaxe in, in the middle of a mining shaft, you know, hacking away, trying to get whatever he needed to get, um, at least to get started, to get on the road to, to writing it. And I didn't feel the need to do that kind of stuff, until, or, or if I did, um, I don't remember it now. Where Sinclair's novel involves the overlapping ambitions and corruptions of eight main characters, There Will Be Blood focuses almost exclusively on one person and one thing, a man's search for oil, which for some people is yet another cause for complaint. Not all that much happens. Seven minutes into the film, Plainview finds oil. A short while later, he finds some more. And later still, even bigger oil fields. Finally, after about 150 minutes, he says there is no more oil to drill, and the film ends. So, as toxic as many audiences find Plainview to be, what compounds their complaint is that he does not change. But again, ask yourself, where is it written that authors shall create characters that change? Or, to put it in classical Aristotelian terms, characters must achieve catharsis. In which case, how do we account for these iconic, yet static characters? The defendant is not guilty. But somebody in this courtroom is. What does he do, this man you seek? You talking to me? You talking to me? I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. And despite repeatedly having had their memories erased so they can begin afresh and move on with their lives, Neither of these two people change. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm going to make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. I remember that speech really well. I had you pegged, didn't I? Yeah, the whole human race pegged. Just as the script appears to defy a traditional character arc and dramatic progress, so too is Anderson's direction just as challenging yet just as rewarding. Take the opening sequence. But before anyone says that the first 14 minutes are silent, they need to listen to the film all over again. From almost the very start of his career, Paul Thomas Anderson has possessed a pronounced visual vocabulary. From the three and a half minute Steadicam shot that opens Boogie Nights, to the whip pans and rapid edits that punctuate both that film and his next picture Magnolia. But in both those films and his fourth feature Punch Drunk Love, it is his meticulous control of the widescreen format that stands out. Anderson grasps composition, movement, lighting and depth of field as few other directors do, which is probably why he served as his own cinematographer on his most recent film, Phantom Thread. But on There Will Be Blood, his collaborator was Robert Ellswit. Here is Ellswit in conversation in 2010 at Principia College, Illinois, with his wife and visual effects producer, Helen Austenberg. I work with people who are very old-fashioned and, and are still doing things the way they've been done since they invented movies. And one of them is, is Paul Anderson. I mean, he really is, even though he's very young, he's a Luddite. 
He won't go into a digital suite. He won't scan a movie. He won't pay. He never wants to go. He has a computer. Sort of knows how to use it, but not really. Um, yeah, email. He doesn't do email. He doesn't even do email. Ellswith won an Oscar for his work here, and undoubtedly his ability to control the near-constant natural light of the outdoors helped earn him the statuette. But there is more to it than that. Ellsworth's frame reinforces one of Anderson's themes, moral vacancy. Shot in the anamorphic format, it never fails to emphasize the horizontal, often pitting plain view at the center of the frame, the space on either side of him emphasizing a terrible absence in his life. But as strong as Ellsworth's frame is, it is Johnny Greenwood's score and Christopher Scarabozio's sound design that give the images their visceral tension especially in the opening. Everything about that land, this man, his enterprise, is hostile, exacting and fatal. And defying expectation, when Plainview experiences his first success, there is no sense of elation, no triumphant music, no shouts of victory, no prayers of thanks. Which is fitting, because for a film that holds religion and preaching so central to its conflict, there is a satisfying irony that we don't hear any words uttered until 10 years into the story. And then, as if to indicate the sacrilege to come, it is a sermon from the Gospel according to Plainview. Ladies and gentlemen, I've traveled over half our state to be here tonight. I couldn't get away sooner because my new well was coming in at Coyote Hills and I had to see about it. That well is now flowing at 2,000 barrels and it's paying me an income of $5,000 a week two others drilling, and I have 16 producing at Antelope, so... Ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. We first discover Plainview when he is underground, hammering into the walls of a mineshaft, his pickaxe striking sparks against the hard rock. He is like Prometheus, only he will not steal fire from the gods, he will take liquid from the earth. And liquid will be crucial to the film. Not just the blood of the title, nor the oil that makes him rich. Not just water, which may quench his thirst, but never satisfies his ambition. Not just the alcohol he douses into the milk to nurse his adopted son H.W., and certainly not the whiskey to which he eventually succumbs. But also the tears that will be shed, either sincerely or disingenuously, by Plainview throughout the story. Here, liquid seeps everywhere. Just as the oil that Plainview found gurgled up to the surface of the soil, so too did it bring him up to the sunlight. And then, when he experienced financial success, just like one of his derricks, he erupted in an apocalyptic fire, his ambition unleashed to burn so ferociously it scorched the earth and everyone around him. I know you and I have disagreed over many things. I'd rather keep you as my father than my partner. Then say it! you've got something to say to me, then say it. I'd like to hear you speak instead of your little dog. Woof, 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 woof. I'm going to Mexico with my wife. I'm going away from you. That wasn't so hard, was it? And yet, although there will be blood, seems to fly in the face of so much of what has gone before it, it does nonetheless evoke several films that explore similar themes. Perhaps the most obvious example would be George Stevens's 1956 adaptation of Edna Ferber's epic novel Giant, which also focuses on oil exploration. 
Eight years before that, John Huston adapted Bruno Traven's novel The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which charted an obsessive but ultimately futile search for great fortune. Seven years earlier, Orson Welles' Citizen Kane focused on a pathologically acquisitive man who ends up alone in a great mansion. And back in the silent era, in 1924, Eric von Stroheim mounted what he intended to be an eight-hour production of Frank Norris's sprawling novel, MacTeague. But just as von Stroheim retitled the story Greed, MGM reduced the running time by over three quarters, cutting it down to little over two hours, but retaining the ending, with McTeague standing in the baking heat of the New Mexico desert, handcuffed to a man he has just murdered. Besides men acquiring wealth, we have other comparisons. Men obsessed with and corroded by power. Which brings us to Michael Corleone and, most perversely, Chinatown. There, Noah Cross, played by John Huston, fabricates a drought and murders his son-in-law so he can buy up land on the cheap. In fact, in preparation for the role, Daniel Day-Lewis modelled Plainview's voice on Huston. See, Mr. Gitz, most people never have to face the fact that the right time and the right place, they're capable of everything. But one film rarely cited is Mate One, written and directed in 1987 by John Sayles, and starring Chris Cooper, James Earl Jones, Mary MacDonald and David Strathairn. It dramatises the Battle of Maiton that took place in 1920 in West Virginia, when the managers of a coal mine called in the Baldwin Fells Detective Agency to crush the striking miners. Besides also focusing on the rudimentary extraction of the Earth's natural resources and the fatal exploitation of human labour, Maiton opens down a mine shaft and also features a teenage boy aiming to become a preacher. If he was walking the earth today and seen the situation we got with these coal operators, he'd have changed his tune. A man deserveth an hourly wage, he'd say, for though the pit be gassy and the face full of slate, a man still toileth by the sweat of his brow and wants a better deal here on earth, no matter what I got in store for him in the hereafter. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. There Will Be Blood is a masterpiece, certainly one of the greatest achievements of this millennium. But for its detractors, their final complaint is that in creating such a gargantuan character, Anderson unbalanced his drama. The criticism is that Plainview's rival, Eli Sunday, was far too young and not worldly enough. Played with suitable vulnerability by Paul Dano, Eli considers himself a prophet. But from the moment we first see him, we sense that he is as deluded as Plainview is possessed. All too often when critics point out what they think is a flaw in a film, very few of them bother to offer alternatives or solutions. So consider this. Perhaps if Eli had been, say, 10 years older, and with the age increase, he was already attracting believers on the same scale as Plainview was sucking oil from the earth. A template for Eli might have been someone as charismatic as Sinclair Lewis's Elmer Gantry, and someone as zealous as Flannery O'Connor's Hazel Motes, who dominated her 1952 novel Wise Blood. John Huston brought that to the screen in 1979, with Brad Dourif playing the misbegotten preacher. Let me tell you something. Maybe you think that you ain't clean because you don't believe. Every one of you are clean, and I'll tell you why. If you think it's because of Jesus Christ crucified, you're wrong. I ain't saying he wasn't crucified, but I say it wasn't for you. I'm gonna start a new church the church approved without Jesus Christ crucified, and it won't cost you nothing to join my church. 
so if Eli had been older, the prophet might have stood as large as Plainview. In which case, I think the ideal actor to play him would have been a then relatively unknown Michael Shannon. You go to church, Nash? You go to church? Sure. Only one in a hundred's gonna get on that ark, son. And every other poor soul's gonna drown. 